Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And And you're you're listening listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where we have reached the letter G. My name is Tom Butler and joining me from Section G to check the radiation shields of this episode is Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. I've definitely used that one before. Um, and alongside him is the gifted, gregarious and glamorous Mr. Tom Wheatley. What's that in reference to? Letter G. Um, I've, I, was, I've, I say it's not about Bond again. I always try and work these out every time you do it, but no. I, should, I should put less, less effort into trying to understand it. Don't, Isn't Sector yeah. 7G The Simpsons? No, Section G is Klaus Hergesheimer. Um, Sector 7G, right. I think you're uh, right, is, is The Simpsons, yeah. Right. Yeah. Ah, so, it's a new year and it's a new look podcast. So, um, we are giving the show a, a bit of a makeover for, for the 2022. Um, after getting through the letters A to F in 2021, where we sort of got to the con- point where we were starting to repeat ourselves. So, we've decided to streamline the letters, letter episodes uh, a little bit. It's the same old podcast that you're used to, though. It just means that we'll be spending a little bit more time talking about the stuff you enjoy and hopefully making these letter episodes as much fun as the film specials. So um, on this episode, we'll be covering a number of people from behind the scenes of Bond, a couple of recurring characters, and we'll also uh, wrap up by talking about the characters that all fall under the letter G. How does that sound? Have I explained that well? It sounds good, but I think you've uh, probably excited a few people when you said there's been a revamp and they were hoping it would be new presenters. Yes. We're doing it slightly differently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, well, like, oh, it's still these three doing it. Well, there is a... <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah. Hoping for some good presenters. <laughs> <laughs> actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. So uh, uh, without further ado, shall I kick things off? Oh, Yes. So G is for Gassner, Dennis Gassner, and he's a production designer. Are you two sort of aware of who Dennis Gassner is? No, I recognise well, the name. I mean, in the world of production designers in James Bond, I mean, the, there's a few that really stand out as the sort of the iconic ones, right? You've got Ken Adam, uh, you've got Peter Lamont. Um, and But actually, I think when you look at, in the future, when we look back at Bond, I think Dennis Gassner will be looked back upon as actually a really important production designer in the world of James Bond. He is responsible for uh, production design on three James Bond films, uh, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall and Spectre. So it's 
it's the recent stuff, right? So yeah. mm-hmm. he is uh, an American Canadian production designer born in 1948, and he's been nominated seven times for the Academy Awards. Um, wow. And he actually won in 1992 for Bugsy, you know, the musical Bugsy. Oh, yeah. And so he's well known for his work from after that, for his work with the Coen brothers. Um, and he worked with them on a number of films, including Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And The Lady Killers in 2004 was his last collaboration with them. So can you link uh, Dennis Gassner and the Coens to Bond with one person? No. No. D, D for Deakins. Uh, wow, when I say it, yeah, it's obvious, isn't it? Yes. So he's also famous for working Roger Deakins, and he worked with Roger Deakins on Blade Runner 2049, which is the film that won Deakins the Oscar. Um, a couple of other films that you'll know that Gassner worked on, worked on include Waterworld, The Truman Show, and The Golden Compass. But he actually started out um, in working in the art department on uh, Apocalypse Now, which is one of my favourite films of all time, and he worked for Francis Ford Coppola's company, American Zoetrope. Um, So he's actually worked with Sir Sam Mendes many times and their collaboration began with Road to Perdition, um, which obviously starred Daniel Craig. um, And they've actually since worked together on Jarhead, Skyfall, Spectre and 1917. So here's a little fun fact for you before we dive into the world of Bond. Dennis Gassner is a practicing yogi. He's been a yogi for 25 years. Do you know what that means? Nope. Yes. He steals picnics um, in Yellowstone Park. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> absolutely fantastic. That was a good one. Uh, <laughs> Great for the new year. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, he does, teaches yoga. Um, so anyway, he was brought into James Bond by director Mark Forster, who had um, been impressed with Gaston's work on with the Coen brothers. And um, he felt he could bring a similar style and sensibility to the Bond films that Ken Adam had done. Gassner said he was inspired by Daniel Craig himself. He said he is our James Bond, that great face. It is angular and chiselled. He has great features to his face and, of course, his piercing blue eyes. And from that moment, we started to create the language and it built up from there. And when they broke, when Barbara and Michael broke the news to Daniel that uh, Dennis Gassner was going to be the production designer, Daniel Craig said, Dennis, I'm so glad you are on this film. I have one thing to tell you. I want you want your gloves off and your knuckles bloody on this one. I don't know what that means. Um, nope. Nope. <laughs> but talking about working with Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, the producers on the Bond films, he said they're inquisitive, interested, always there, letting you do your job and asking the right questions. It's a great family. It's important to have that in these films. So talking about Quantum of Solace, his favourite set on that film uh, was the, uh, the, the, the Dominic Green's base in Chile. And that's actually a real life hotel, which is located in the Atacama Desert. And the hotel is used to house astronomers and staff at the European Southern Observatory. The other sets he built for Quantum of Solace include the hotel in which Strawberry Field gets killed in oil. And another thing that he can be credited with is bringing MI6 up to date after... Because we didn't really see it in Casino Royale, did we? The, the MI6 headquarters. But in uh, Quantum, he, he said, I pushed the notion to modernise MI6. The feeling I had from Casino was that Judy was at a place that was a bridge between the older M world and Bond's world, and I wanted to get her up to speed. I wanted her on a computer. So it's perhaps Dennis Gassner's fault that we have all that weird touchscreen stuff in Quantum of Solace, but um, but there you go. Mm. But this that vision of um, MI6 was pretty much dropped uh, the following film, which, which Gassner returned for in Skyfall after MI6 got blown up by Silver. 
And that's when the Secret Service sort of goes into that underground lair. And Gaston said, it's the kind of question every government has to think about. In an extreme emergency, where do you go? In London, during World War II, they went underground under the city. And that is what M decides to do. And this is where they go. And I think that, for me, I think that's a great stylistic decision in that film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Makes MI6 seem different, seem new, seem exciting. And that's quite a lot of the appeal of Skyfall for me. Um, Yeah, definitely. It's a great set as well. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Um, and it, I mean, it sort of does bridge that world to that technology of the of quantum of solace, but not too over the top, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gassner built 31 sets for Skyfall, um, including the catacombs in which the train tube train ca- crashes, Skyfall Lodge, the casino, Silver's Island. When I say all this stuff, you can just visualize it straight away, can't you? And that's like mm-hmm. the power of the production design, um, which, uh, yeah, I mean, you can say that about Ken Adam and um yeah peter lamont almost but um not 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 many other production designers but talking about um his process he said that i believe that stories or story always comes first when planning to design any given set for any given character and throughout the process of skyfall i considered bond's emotional journey and how each environment affects him and vice versa so then from there we he went on to work on spectre again with sam mendes Obviously, we've got the Day of the Dead sequence at the start of that. He was asked whether or not there was any inspiration taken from Live and Let Die. And he just basically said, you know, it's there, it's subconscious, and uh, it's impossible not to draw on the previous films um, that have come in the series for a f- series that's been going for so long. So, uh, yeah, he definitely drew on that a little bit. And then in, after, after Skyfall and Inspector, we see a return to sort of the wood-panelled world of Whitehall that we get Inspector, and then also obviously No Time to Die as well. So again, really influential work from him here. He said, um, for M's office in this, we went back to the tradi- traditional, which we did in Skyfall as well. And that tradition of Whitehall scenario is still holding on, and we wanted to root ourselves in that emotional feeling. In a way, Spectre is like a continuation of Skyfall in its rhythms and patterns. So that is why we stayed with what we knew well, and something that the audience would, would understand. So... Yeah, I mean, you can dismiss Spectre all you like. I mean, you know, it's not beloved by fans. But when you think about it, the production design on that film is terrific. There's so many great sets and locations. You've got Q's lab, um, the underground lab. You've got Bond's apartment. You've got the meeting in Rome. Uh, You've got the clinic in Austria. You've got Mr. White's house, the train, Blofeld's lair. All of that is terrific. And so I think Dennis Gassner, I think, is is an unsung hero of the modern era of Bond, I think. A uh, great film to to watch on mute in the background if you just want something nice <laughs> to, going on in the room. Yeah, it's a good one to put on in a museum, isn't it? Because you don't have to follow it along. Yeah. So just to wrap things up, he said, my job as a designer and Sam as a director is the same that Daniel has as Bond. We're trying to incorporate the best journey that we can tell. That is the journey of a Bond film. That's why people queue up to see a Bond movie. So that's Dennis Gassner. G is for Gilbert, Lewis Gilbert. So Lewis Gilbert is a director and he directed more than 40 films in a career that lasted over six decades. Pretty incredible, including three Bond films. Either of you know which three? The Monorail Trilogy, Inspire You Love Me, Moonraker and You Only Live Twice. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> They've all got monorails in, haven't they? <laughs> Yes, they have got monorails in. I guess so. That's never thought about that. Yeah, well, he, Lewis Gilbert was he was so he was born in Hackney, 
6th of March 1920. And his first first actual role was as a child actor in 1933 film Dick Turpin. So yeah, he was 13 years old. And he met Alexander Corder, who said that he should pursue an acting career and attend RADA, but he'd already got an interest in wanting to direct films and be behind the camera rather than in front of the camera. So he served as an assistant on uh, Jamaica Inn, which is a Hitchcock film. But World War II comes along. As we have covered many times, this, this happened and it cuts short anything, any career that a lot of a number of creatives were, were up to at the time. So he joined the RAF and actually directed documentaries when he was uh, in the US. So after the war was over, he went on to write and direct documentary shorts um, and then he went on to make low-budget feature films with a company called Butcher Netafold Studios. So 1952, his major film, it's called Emergency Call, wasn't well received, but he did start a collaboration with a screenwriter called Vernon Harris, and that lasted over 40 years of them working together. And then he worked on a number of films, films that we've probably never seen in the fift- from the 50s, but it's no- notable is where he starts to come in the 60s, where he directed Sink the Bismarck. Have either of you seen this? Nope. Many no. years ago. Okay. Uh, so it's a war war movie, and that was where his sort of his career starts to take off. Not as much as it took off when he directed Alfie. Now you must have seen this one. Classic. The, the original one, yeah. The original one, not the Jude Law one. <laughs> I've yes. not watched the new one. <laughs> new. The new one. It's probably about 20 years old. Um, yeah. So he won a Best Director nomination at the Golden Globes for that, and it was also nominated for five Academy Awards. And he made it on a really low budget, and he said, he said it was uh, it was low budget. It was the sort of money Paramount executives normally spend on cigar bills. So obviously he's he's made it on shoestring, and it's done very well. So he's starting to make it make that name for himself. And after that, he said, I signed to do. The Godfather. Because of their financial problems, Paramount could only find two million to make it. I said I needed seven million. So he made a low budget film instead called Friends, which you know critically was did well. It got the best foreign film at the Golden Globes. And he said Paramount, meanwhile, had a, had an unexpected hit in Love Story. So they were back in the money. They could spend properly on The Godfather. Coppola made it, and the rest is history. So he came very, very close to directing The Godfather. I mean, it, I'm, I'm guessing it would have been a completely different film. So Louis Gilbert's Godfather would have had a, probably a volcano lair for Don Corleone, perhaps? Oh, that would be yeah, fantastic. Probably. Yeah, would have been oh, a different kind of movie. Yes, yeah. So that same year, he actually turned down an offer to direct You Only Live Twice. Mm. And he said, I'd made several big pictures... I just made Alfie when Cubby and Harry came to me and asked me to do Bond number five. At first, I turned them down because I didn't know what I could possibly offer them. Cubby called and told me he was surprised at my reaction because he said he was interested in seeing what sort of mess I'd make it. And that immediately appealed to me. He said, you're turning down the biggest audience in the world. And I thought that's absolutely true. When you make a film, you never know what the audience is going to be. You might make a good picture and nobody goes to see it. You may have a bad one and everyone goes to see it. There's no science to it. But what, what Cubby did say was there was a big audience worldwide waiting to see the next Bond film. So 
that sort of guarantee of a huge audience seeing his work tipped him over the edge and made him sign on the dotted line. Unsurprisingly. Absolutely, yeah. But it's surprising that he hadn't realised that before. You know, the the previous <laughs> four have been massive. Yeah. Um, but there you go. So, so he, he signs up. Um, you Only Live Twice is a success. Uh, then Lewis Gilbert heads back to Paramount and he makes a film called The Adventurers, which is panned critically. So we fast forward to the mid-70s and The Spy Who Loved Me was struggling to get a director. Guy Hamilton had left. He'd gone on to gone off to direct. Guess, any guesses what film he'd left to go and direct? He didn't direct it. There's a clue. Superman when was this? Superman, correct. Superman, yeah. Yeah. Um, that obviously went to Richard Donner. So, Eon, make the call again and get Lewis Gilbert back. And he accepted the offer. So, yeah, he brought in screenwriter Christopher Wood. He knew that he was a big fan of the actual novels. And... Gilbert wanted to try and fix what he felt the previous two Roger Moore films were doing wrong. And he thought they were writing it too much like how Sean Connery was playing the character. Uh, He wanted to do it very English, very smooth, good sense of humour. He said, with Roger, I was always trying to give him a Cary Grant-like attitude and it was the right thing to do. So that is probably why there is a shift. You do notice that shift between Mm. the first two and the, the ones after. Yeah, but I I wouldn't I find it surprising that they were trying to shift away from Connery inspired of me when the like well Man with the Golden Gun especially is more ridiculous. Mm. I would have assumed he would have said the opposite and like said oh we wanted to get more back to go, the sort go, of yeah go back to yeah yeah but, um, but they went surprising. back to novel Bond didn't they that's that was mm. they go even further yeah. back. So obviously Spy Love Me was a huge success and. Um, he then come, he comes along and re- returns to direct Moonraker, which was successful at the time, but obviously had its critics. He said, The Spy Who Loved Me is my favourite of the three Bond films I directed. I love the humour in it, and I think it has the best song. No, he does it better. I mean, can't really argue with that. I think I agree with him. 100%. Yep. So then, in the 80s, he sort of went for small-scale dramas and he directed a film version of the play Educating Rita. Fantastic film. And he said... Great work. You'd think it's easy to raise money if your last film was Moonraker. Yet everyone turned down Rita. Columbia wanted me to cast Dolly Parton as Rita. Wow. Wow. That would have been different. (laughs) It would. (laughs) So when he finished the film, um, he had all the distributors that were fighting over it and were desperate for it basically and Educating Rita actually won Lewis Gilbert a BAFTA for the best film. Uh, 1989 he directed Shirley Valentine and also 1991 he directed a film called Stepping Out. Interestingly I always get Shirley Valentine and um, Educating Rita mixed up. Ah. Didn't didn't realise they were both by him. Well there um, you go that's probably why. In 1997 he was appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire. So he got a CBE, CBE in the birthday honours for his services to the film industry. And then in 2001, he was made a fellow of the British Film Institute, which is the, that's the highest accolade that the BFI awards. 
Uh, in 2010, he released an autobiography, which is called All My Flashbacks, the autobiography of Lewis Gilbert, 60 Years a Film Director. He was married to Hilda Taffler for 53 years, and she was the reason he did uh, Educating Rita. She saw the play and recommended that he should do that. So they were married right up until her death in June 2005. And then in February 23rd, 2018, Gilbert died in his home in Monaco. What a legend. Yep. Yeah. Absolute legend. What a career as well. That's that's a huge career, isn't it? Like if you if you start off from Dick Turpin in nineteen thirty three. Hmm. Incredible. I, I often think about some of these older directors that we talk about and um very there's there's sort of a, a, a royalty of older directors that are passed into the modern day as names and people know them. People like Hitchcock and you know Howard Hawks like even young people who've never seen the films probably will hear their names at some point. But people like Lewis Gilbert, you don't hear their names mm-hmm. classified. They haven't, their names haven't really passed on to the modern day in the same way. You, you just kind of see them as old British directors. Yeah. But when you look back on what he's done, he was like a Christopher Nolan or something of his of his generation. And um, yeah, it's a tricky one to sort of, yeah, disappears into the ether a bit for me. Mm. But shouldn't do. No. I agree, yeah. Absolutely. I think his three. I think his three Bond films are uh, uh, come at the pinnacle of Bond for me. They're like you know, in terms of spectacle, I think he's got mm-hmm. a lot to say. Um, there's a lot to be said for the scale that he brought to the Bond films that he made, and uh, they've been striving to to reach those heights ever since. Um, so yeah, Lewis Gilbert. I think he's he's one of the all time greats for me. G is for Glenn, John Glenn. Uh, another well, interesting that when we do these podcasts, they always seem to sort of link together in the in the letters that we do because um, John Glenn is so closely linked with Lewis Gilbert and that era of, of Bond makings or the latter time of Lewis Gilbert. But John Glenn, he was a director of um, Bond films, but actually was also an editor as well. So he's an editor on On a Magic Secret Service, Spy Love Me, and Moonraker, and then went on to become a director for. For your eyes only, Octopussy, A View to Kill, Living Dial Arts, and License to Kill. He, um, a bit, a little bit about John Glenn. This is, in, I didn't really know a lot about John Glenn really before I started reading this. I always knew he was a director of Bond films, but never really actually had any understanding of what had led him up to that point. He was born in Sunbury, Sunbury on Thames during the war, and apparently there were a lot of raids during that period. And in fact, apparently, uh, just down the road from his house, about five miles away, was the uh, where the first V two rocket had hit Britain. But according to Glenn, he didn't really it didn't have any effect on him. It didn't make him feel any fear towards the war. Probably actually gave him his interest in the the, the world of film that he got into. Around 1945, he joined the Sea Cadets, and this is the start of his career in film, interestingly. He met a, a, another lad who um, was a messenger boy who worked at a film studio, and the messenger lad said to him, there's a, there's a vacancy going on at the film studio that he was working at. So he applied to work there, but he was told he was too tall for the uniform. But because he'd started applying for working in the film industry, he actually got a job at Shepperton Studios as a, as a messenger boy. Uh, so the messenger boy kind of just you know as you'd imagine from a messenger boy wanders around taking stuff from place to place and giving messages but it also meant that he got the opportunity to actually see every bit of the film process really so he was sending messages from directors to i don't know editors to people working on the floor so he just kind of wandered around all the time got to see all this all this stuff 
un- understandably made him more interested in in working in the film industry. So eventually he got a role, uh, job working as disposing of flammable nitrate film, something that happened back in the day. Uh, and from there he learned to uh, number and splice film. And then after three years of joining the studio, he was promoted to second assistant editor. So he clearly paid off that wandering around a film set all the time. He worked on quite a few big films in his early days. Uh, the Third Man, which I'm sure you're both um, aware of if you've not seen it and a film called The Wooden Horse which did really well in 1950 uh, he did like uh, Gilbert as well he had to leave and join the RAF when he turned 18 but he only stayed there for two years and then he came back did a couple of editing jobs so a second ass- assistant editor job and assistant editor role for a company called uh, Group 3 so he got really into sound editing as well which is where he worked on The Green Man another big film from that era Um, Interestingly, he apparently had to cancel his honeymoon because he was working on Three Men in a Boat. I haven't seen that film, but I've read the book. But apparently he was famous on that film for creating some new techniques in sound editing. Uh, But it was during the production, shortly after that, he worked on a production called The Admiral Crichton, and this is where he met Peter Hunt. Um, So starting to... Tendrils starting to come out into the world of Bond, which you can imagine around that area, there was a lot of tendrils going on from the Bond world. Um, but he didn't start working on Bond straight away. He did a bit of TV work. Uh, the 1950s was a, wasn't a great period for films, especially in Britain, and he was, didn't really do a lot in the sort of early 1950s. But in the 1960s, um, he got a big break and he worked on a as an editor on a TV show called Chemistry for Six Forms. And then he went on to do... Uh, um, second unit work on Danger Man, which we've brought up a few times in the podcast. Uh, have you? Have either of you yet to watch any episodes of Danger Man? No, no, not. Go, go and watch a couple. They're very good. Um, you can see sort of, sort of links around the the spy British genre um, of that era. Is it um, as good as Flashman? Well, I'm not going to go into. I'm not going to go into too much depth with <laughs> so, no, depth of Splashman. Um, but it, what that meant was Danger Man gave him the opportunity to work on bigger sequences and learn a bit more about British action spy um, genre. Uh, and then he went on to work on uh, The Man in a Suitcase. Again, probably learnt quite a lot from that that he then took across to his Bond uh, credits later on. Uh, and he even directed an episode of that, which is where he got his first directing credit. So, Bond. Went back into movies after doing a little bit of t- TV work. Uh, one of the, f- the films he worked on was The Italian Job with Michael Caine. Um, and during that, uh, which he was doing sound editing for, and during that period, he got a call from Peter Hunt, obviously remembered him from working previously. Um, and he was asked to go down to Pinewood Studios. Uh, so he got a job as an editor and a second unit editor on Our Majesty's Secret Service. Um, and it was him who shot the bobsleigh scene and the avalanche scenes. Um, so he started making a big name for himself in the Bond world. But it was not to continue for the next few films. He actually left the Bond series on A Magic Secret Service um, after it was released. Um, Peter Hunt moved on and Guy Hamilton came in. uh, And Guy Hamilton brought his own editor and didn't like to use second unit directors on his films. So John Glenn disappeared for a bit. He worked on uh, Murphy's War, uh, Catlow, uh, Pulp, which was a Michael Caine film, uh, and a film called Sitting Target, which starred Jilson John and Oliver Reed. Then, in 1974, the Bond tendrils start going again, and he worked for the first time with Roger Moore as a second unit director on Gold. Um, He also worked with Peter Hunt and Roger Moore for Shout at the Devil. 
He worked on Wild Geese. Um, and then he worked as second unit director for Superman. And then when, uh, you well, as you said, Lewis Gilbert got brought in to do uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, he wanted to work with, or Cubby was actually impressed with the work that uh, John Glenn had done on Our Majesty's Secret Service and w- wanted to bring him back into the to the fold again. So he was brought in to work with John Gilbert on, um, uh, sorry, Lewis Gilbert on The Spy Who Loved Me. So he uh, was the editor on that and... Um, he got fairly impressive job of shooting the the pre-title sequence so that was that was his sequence to to pull together and i'm sure everyone can remember the pre-title sequence for the spider of me where bond jumps off the cliff and he's got the parachute with the union jack on he again in moonraker um worked uh, on the pre-title sequence which was bond and jaws they jump out of a plane i don't know what it is with john glennon parachutes Definitely had a thing about parachutes at this this part of his career. But then after those films, he was asked to direct for Your Eyes Only. So clearly made a big impression with um, what the work he'd done on those films. I, I've read this a few times where he wanted to pull the Bond movies back to the style of the Fleming novels with For Your Eyes Only. And I know we talk about this a, a bit. I'm not entirely sure that comes across very well when you see For Your Eyes Only. But you can kind of get the gist of what trying to do, make it a bit more serious. Uh, he, after doing... Um, your eyes only you would then worked on octopussy i'm not going to go into too much detail with these films because we will be covering um what we've covered a view to kill in detail and octopussy we will covering in a future one so he went on to work on octopussy and a view to a kill uh he was instrumental in the sort of moving on from roger moore to timothy dalton and and worked quite closely with the hunt for the new bond and talking to brosnan for uh, around the role and eventually getting dalton to do it but apparently when he left the Bond series, he, he he found it a bit trickier because people sort of typecast his directing style as being Bond, especially that 80s era of Bond, which was very, like, I, th- I think probably critically not well received in terms of creativity. And it was more seen as like an action and it was a big money maker. You just threw a lot of, of into, into those films. So he, um, after doing Bond, he did a pilot for an American TV show called Checkered Flag, uh, which was never made, but they did make a movie of it. And then he directed uh, Aces, Iron Eagle 3. Anyone ever seen an Iron Eagle film? No. no. Not very good. I've actually watched all of them. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> and another link as well from what you were saying earlier, Brendan, is um, Mario Puzo. So he... Um, directed a film called Columbus The Discovery in, uh, which came out in 1992 now on paper this looks ridiculous I mean in a good way it's got Marlon Brando um, Tom Selleck I never knew Marlon Brando started a film with Tom Selleck uh, Rachel Ward Robert DeVee uh, Benicio Del Toro and uh, another Bond alumni uh, Michael Gothard who was uh, uh, Locke in For Your Eyes Only so he pulled quite a few Bond people into this one as well that film Sounds amazing. It won. Uh, Tom Selleck won the Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Supporting Actor. Marlon Brando nominated for Worst Supporting Actor. Film received four more Golden Raspberry Award nominations. Worst Picture, Worst Director for John Glenn. Worst New Star. uh, Worst Screenplay for Mario Puzo. And at the 1992 Stinkers uh, Bad Movie Awards, it got a nomination for Worst Picture. So we... um we we talked about that film a little bit on uh, the Timothy Dalton episode because Timothy Dalton was going to star in it. Uh, yes, I've, yeah. well, you've just jumped ahead of me there. <laughs> I was just going to say that Timothy Dalton was meant to star in it, but apparently there was... Um, well, John Glenn thinks that it might be because of a falling out on the last 
Bond film that they worked on and he, that's the reason why he didn't want to come back. I like to think that he, he didn't come back because he knew that it was going to be an Dreadful. absolute yeah. uh, pile of um, nonsense. Uh, but yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a film get that many uh, nominations from the... the, the, the How Rose cynical that there's a worst new star. I mean, that's awful, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, first, there's got to be a lot of bad new first, stars coming yeah, out. Yeah, your first film and you get an award. Well, at least you get an award, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Well, yeah, so uh, he also moved on. Another thing he did, this is one you remember, Butler, Space Precinct. Oh, yes. Episodes of that. Uh, I won't remember which ones, and I'm definitely not going to go back to watch it. Um, and then in 2001, he published his memoir, For My Eyes Only. Ooh. Very, very clever. Uh, just a little bit about his directorial style. So there's an interesting thing with John Glenn in that he's sort of famous for this pigeon scene in, I think that's in Moonraker, that one, isn't it? Yeah. This pigeon scene. So he's famous for this sort of double taking pigeon. And I read somewhere that he'd sort of come up with a editing style where he could make the pigeon look like it was doing a double cake. I don't think it's an editing style. It's just slightly rewinding the shot and then playing it again. So it's not not groundbreaking editing from from my perspective, um, but it's not just a, a double take. I think the double take pigeon appears more than once from my understanding. But in all of his films, there is sort of an animal that responds humorously to something that bo- that one of the bonds does, which I think is like a monkey in one of them, and there's a cat in another one. So. So of all the things that John Glenn's famous for, this seems to be the one that crops up the most. This is like his legacy, this style <laughs> of filming where an animal does a double take, which um probably not what you want to be remembered for. He also has he's also famous for characters falling from a height um accompanied by uh, the male scream sound, which is the, the same Wilhelm every... scream. Scream. Yeah. Yeah. The Wilhelm scream. So that's another thing he's known for. And another thing is that he often reused actors in films, as you can see from the Christopher Columbus, the Discovery film. Uh, not great things to be remembered by. Interesting, but not great. Um, so yeah, John Glenn, big deal in the Bond world. Debatable whether his films are, you know, the best in the series or some of the best in the series, but he's definitely made a stamp on on the series. What do well, you think to him? Well, he carried he carried the Bond franchise through the eighties, didn't he? And and it meant there was something to work with. For when Brosnan yeah. comes along in the nineties, <laughs> definitely had its own <laughs> he, style from, he, uh, from he, that point. Yeah, he directed every Bond film in the eighties, which is quite yeah. astonishing, really. And I think yeah. um, I know you said he worked as an editor on on the Majesty's Secret Service. I think he shot Second Unit on there as well. And something okay. I always think about with John Glenn is that, um, and it's something we talked about on the For Your Eyes Only episode, is he's a very economical director, and I think that comes from having experience working as an editor and as Second Unit director. He knows exactly what he needs to get the shot he's not wasteful in terms of spending too many times taking getting too many different angles for different things he knows exactly what what's going to work in the sequence he shoots it he gets it um that doesn't necessarily make him uh like the most visually exciting of directors but there are bond fans out there who think he's the best of the bond directors so well you know it's horses for courses really but for me i think 80s bond is yeah, I don't think it's not as interesting to me as 60s Bond, 70s Bond or 90s Bond. So for me, it's I, for that reason. Um, yeah, it does lack a, a certain sense of consistent style, doesn't it? I mean, you, John Glenn may have a style in terms of the scenes that he chooses to do, but 
a, a sort of running style that the Sean Connery films has is far more powerful, I think. Yeah, I think maybe License to Kill is probably his his best work. But again, that's a divisive film for a lot of people, right? It's not it's not for mm. everyone. Mm. Um, it's not going to top the list every Bond fan's favorite favorite Bond film but um you know it's got its it's got its fans I don't know I think John Glenn's a very interesting director um but um yeah he's got a big legacy in the world of Bond we wouldn't have Bond nowadays without without John Glenn's work in the 80s for sure absolutely Uh, talking of linking themes on episodes G is now for General Gogol um, who is a recurring character that appeared in many of the John Glenn James Bond films. So he was an act, uh, a recurring character who was first introduced in The Spy Who Loved Me and he was played by the German actor Walter Gotal, who we have recently talked about in the episode From Russia With Love because he played the Spectre agent Morzani in that film as well. So do you guys know what uh, Gogol's first name is? No. No. So in The Spy Who Loved Me, he's referred to as Alexis Gogol. But by the time he comes uh, to his final film, The Living Daylights, he's referred to as Anatoly. So there is a bit of a discrepancy there in the Bond canon. So, um, yeah, there mm. you go. So I think he's a really interesting character. He's sort of ostensibly introduced as an antagonist for Bond. You know, he's the one that sends Agent Triple X out to get uh, revenge for the death of um, the, the Russian agent. But by the end of that film, he's actually working in alliance with the MI6 to defeat Stromberg. And this is a theme that Gotel, uh, Gogol um, carries throughout his, his time in the James Bond films. So talking about where he came from, Walter Gotel said... It must have been the early 70s and a film was being made with Elizabeth Taylor by George Cukor in Russia. Cukor invented Cubby to visit the location. Cubby came armed to Russia with a copy of Bond of a Bond picture and showed it to them. The Russians rolled about with laughter and they said, this is absolutely great. We would love to take your films. The only reason we can't is because you've made it anti-Russian. Why don't you make the films not with not a pro-Russian, but with something that where we are equal villains? So Cubby turned around and said, let's make a character who is KGB, not a villain, not a hero, but who will be acceptable in terms of Russian distribution. And that was the origin of Gogol. So it's quite interesting that he was uh, engineered to basically open up the film, the Bond series to the Russian audiences. So I never Mm. really considered that before, but it's it's quite interesting. Um, I won't spend too long talking about Gogol because he... He he recurs in quite a few different films, and we'll end up talking about him in each of those. But um, so he appears in uh, the Spy Who Loved Me, like I said, uh, as the handler for Agent Triple X. He's the head of KGB. In Moonraker, he appears briefly talking on the phone uh, to um, the U.S. Air Force, talking about the um, the, the the Moonraker uh, satellite, um, and he has that line about having pro- problems in Russia keeping him awake, and it cuts to a, a sexy lady on a bed. Um, in from Russia with love he makes a deal with Christassos to buy the ATAC but then Bond destroys it uh, in Octopussy he opposes Orlov's plans to invade the West and then he investigates Orlov and then in A View to a Kill uh, he appears in France to reprimand Zorin for killing 007 and learns about Operation Mainstrike and that's when he sends Polar Ivanova to see what Zorin is up to and that's where you get the famous scene in the bathtub with Roger Moore and the bubbles tickling her Tchaikovsky. <laughs> uh, and that's where he gives the wrong take to Gogol. 
Um, and in that film, Gogol awards Bond the Order of Lenin for foiling Zorin's plan to destroy Sil- Silicon Valley. Um, and then in The Living Daylights, Gogol is mentioned as having retired from the KGB and having been uh, succeeded by General Pushkin. And this is because uh, Gogol was supposed to play a much bigger part in The Living Daylights. But unfortunately, due to Walter, Walter Gotel's ill health, he wasn't able to take part. So what they did is they created a whole new character with Push, uh, called Pushkin, and that's John Reese davis And he was the man that was brought in to play the sympathetic KGB general. But Gotel does appear at the end of The Living Daylights as a diplomat in the foreign ministry. And he goes to Kara's concert with M and then offers Kara a visa, which would allow her to leave uh, the Eastern Bloc at her will. So, yeah, Walter Goltel died in 1997 at the age of 73. Um, but, yeah, he's a really interesting Bond character. I mean, when you, when you see his face, you can, it makes you think this is Bond. This is 1980s Bond. Um, he's just one of those people. It's a shame we don't have characters like that really in Bond anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I was think. just thinking, I was just thinking about us going, do we have anything like that now? And we don't. No. no. We've had Felix Leiter, but he's obviously transcends that mm. because he was in the very first Bond film, right? Um, yeah. And you've got M, um, but he's one of the few characters that's been in and then disappeared. Um, so it would be interesting to, you know, bring back a Gogol type character, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's Gogol. What have we got next? G is for Grace, Martin Grace. Um, and again, like we say, it's funny how the, the episodes tend to overlap uh, and, and cover... I'm basically going to be covering more 80s Bond. Martin Grace was a stunt performer and stunt coordinator um, and Roger Moore's stunt double throughout most of his Bond films. So he was born in Ireland uh, September 1942 and he was at college in Kilkenny and he experienced uh, action movies when there was a travelling film show uh, that was in uh, came to Kilkenny. So he saw this and he thought, oh, this is this is great. And he moved to London in the early 60s and he went to Mount View, which is Academy of Theatre. Shortly after, he joined a stunt agency. So they got him all sorts of professional work like in, in commercials and just bit part pieces where he could uh, show off his skills as he was learning them. Most notable being the mysterious action man in Cadbury's Milk Tray TV ads. Do you, do you remember these? I actually um, showed Tanya the other day because she was wearing a polo neck, and I called her the milk tray. And I've got no idea what you're talking about, so I had to put it on. I had to put it on the YouTube to show her what it was. Um, yeah, so he he did some stunts for that in in the seventies, sixties, uh, and seventies. So his first actual film credit was as and Butler. You're going to have to correct me on this. Tal in Doctor Who and the Daleks. Is it pronounced Tal? Um, how are you spelling that? T H A L. Yeah, I think it's probably Thal. Thal. Okay. Yeah. Right. This is what he lives for. <laughs> so that was in 1965, um, and then shortly after that, he uh, got his first those tendrils, the Bond tendrils. We're going to start saying this a lot more, aren't we? I, yeah. I, I, first time I come up with that. <laughs> I like it. Um, Spectre, isn't it? Octopus. So, yeah. So Bob Simmons and George Leach, who were stunt coordinators on You Only Live Twice, basically, and I think we did, we've covered this, but they got every professional stuntman in England to perform that 
that battle, that vol- volcano battle at the end of You Only Live Twice. And this was because Bob Simmons had, had seen him in the Cadbury milk tray adverts and he was impressed with him. So, um, yeah, and, and also his assistant, George Leach, was also impressed with him. So they spent, like, weeks training him up and seeing, they saw the potential in him. So on that, on You Only Live Twice, Grace also met Vic Armstrong, very young Vic Armstrong at this time, um, who obviously goes on to become stunt coordinator as well. Um, so he said, this is Martin Grace, he said, I now found myself working on one of the most popular action movies of all time, You Only Live Twice. Four weeks of extensive training, scaling necks, sliding down ropes, practicing trampoline explosions for the major action scenes. There I was, a young, raw novice, amongst the seasoned professional stunt people learning the ropes for the future Bonds. I learned a lot more from Bob Simmons as he proved he is a master at organising massive action scenes with ease. I also had the privilege to work alongside another legendary and brave stuntman, Joe Powell. And for the first time, I met a young Vic Armstrong. So if, in terms of, you know, if that's the profession you want to be in, what a place to be. All that, all the talent uh, at that time. Uh, so in the early 70s, he joined a tour, a stunt show tour um, toward Scandinavia. And then he says, I won a Charlton Heston talent contest in 1974 that took me to Hollywood for the first time. I was already preparing my skills with boxing, wrestling, fencing, swimming, trampoline and gym workout, special motor car and motorcycling driving skills, parachuting and various other sport in view of becoming an action stuntman in films. I attended stunt classes to learn the basics and joined a stunt agency for films and commercials. That is an impressive, yes, yeah, impressive repertoire. That, and so, all this work led to him being selected for the Spy Who Loved Me in 1977. So he arrives at uh, Pinewood Studios. He says, "Bob said you're the man I needed. A stunt man who is willing to perform any physical stunt I throw at him day to day with vigor and without complaint or excuses, and be prepared for hard knocks." So, yep, yeah, they knew what they. They saw it in him. They wanted him on board. And uh, one of the first tasks he had was to drive, as Roger Moore, to drive the Lotus. And it's through those windy, narrow streets during that helicopter chase. He said, when you think about stunt car chases, you probably think of much banging, barging, dents and scratching your car, giving that freedom. But on the morning of the beginning of the chase, the production assistant came and said to me, Martin... Whatever the action, do not scratch the car as it has to go back to Lotus in the condition it was delivered in. I thought that was pressuring for me. I mean, it seems quite ridiculous to expect the car to be <laughs> to come back immaculate. That's what stunt drivers are for, though, isn't it? He also doubled for Richard Keel in the shots, in the long shots of the at the Egyptian ruins, mm-hmm. where Jaws is walking along the top of the columns. So another another famous stunt he did in Four Your Eyes Only. He's the he's the one hanging onto the side of the helicopter, but it was in on Octopussy where he got a really bad injury. It was during the train sequence, which was shot at Nen Valley, and to get that shot, he had to leap onto the train from a moving car and then climb underneath. It's a quite a famous stunt scene. This one they they'd rushed it. They wanted to get that shot wrapped and. Uh, they got the shot, so he stayed on the train too long. And he says, The adrenaline was pumping through my arms like never before. 
I felt I could have hung onto the side forever, frightened to let go and drop. I looked down, I saw my trouser leg had been ripped off and saw my thigh bone through the gash in my thigh muscle. Ooh. The train came to a stop. I still hung on miraculously. Wow. So basically, keep rolling. If it, gotta keep rolling. <laughs> gotta keep rolling. They'd got the shot, that's the thing. They'd already got it. They'd just not communicated it to him. <laughs> so he was taken to Peterborough Hospital and it, he just was there for months and they he thought his career would be over. Roger Moore went and visited him. Loads of, as you can imagine, Roger Moore constantly visit him but he made a full recovery and was available for the next bond film where he doubled for roger moore when they're at the top of the eiffel tower and at the scene at the end the golden gate bridge and so martin grace was also he he created that scene the the sequence at the end where bonds is hanging on the blimp he said when bonds being carried to the bridge he's wearing a harness we had a wire running through the rope so so that he was harnessed from the waist onto a little loop coming out of the wire we also had a foot stirrup made up for him so he could put his foot in it and rest. It almost sounds too easy, but the thing is, hanging from a helicopter for 15 minutes without these little aids, you couldn't do it. It's impossible to hang on that long. There's a limit to how long even the strongest man can hold onto a hanging rope. So obviously, there must be safety precautions. And so he's got that vision to be able to know where the level of safety has to be, but to also make the stunt look, look good. So he also doubled for, for Roger Moore in The Wild Geese, North Sea Hijack, Escape to Athena, Sea Wolves, and The Naked Face. Um, so other big film credits as a stunt performer or coordinator, Superman, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Robin Hood, The Truman Show. So across his whole career, he worked on over 70 films, a large number of TV shows as well, including Heroes. So his last his last big film work was on... The Number 23, which is a Jim Carrey film, 2007. Then he suffered a suffered a cycling accident in, in November 2009 where he fractured his pelvis and then he was hospitalised for, for a while. And then in late January, he was taken to hospital uh, developing breathing problems where he died aged 67, January 2010, he's after suffering an aneurysm. So sad, sadly, quite a young age. Uh, but Sir Roger Moore described him as the bravest man he ever knew. Also has a lot to thank him for to make him making Roger Moore look uh, a lot better in those action scenes. Yeah, it's, you, you can kind of see why he went to visit him in hospital. Absolutely, yeah, he needed him. <laughs> he was going to do <laughs> one more. All big hitters in this episode. Uh, huge, aren't they? Really covering off the 80s. Well, speaking of big hitters, G is for Grey, Frederick Grey. We all know who Frederick Grey is, a, a fan favourite, I think, good class, um, uh, Sir Frederick Grey. Played by Geoffrey Keane, uh, he was in The Spy Love Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, A View to Kill and The Living Daylight. So once again, we're treading over the same films in the same era of Bond. I don't know how you've planned this one out, Butler. You've done it very well with the <laughs> only using G's. Um, Alphabet. He was a recurring character who kind of played the same role in every film, but it changed a bit over his his sort of tenure as a character on, on Bond. In the first film that he was in, um, The Spy Who Loved Me, Bond he, he sort of walks down the next to a boat that they're on, um, naval ship, calls him, um, and Bond calls him Freddy, in that communication so it's like they're old friends and um 
they're sort of talking honestly about the the the, the case that they're working on um but that change changes a bit after that first film because after then he becomes more of an office-based character that sits with M a lot. He's sort of brought in as a uh, liaison as the D- Minister of Defence for the British government. And um, he's in every subsequent film, he seems to hate Bond. He seems to take on this role more like M where he's just constantly having to go at him for something or other. Um, so it, I don't think he, I don't think he ever... Um, Bond ever calls him Freddy ever again. Maybe because he's been in office, but also maybe because he just doesn't like him. Now, one of the main reasons for that sort of dislike um, for for Bond in the later films is because it's Roger Moore, and he's just basically doing stuff that annoys him. So in The Spy Love Me, at the end, you've got the bit where Gogol, M, and Q, uh, along with Grey, are watching, um, end up watching Bond and Anya Amasova under the sheets in the escape pod. That's that's obviously going to annoy him. In Moonraker, um, there's a couple of scenes actually. There's the bit where he gets. Uh, remember in uh, in Venice where they have the lab, and um, mm-hmm. Bond says, "You've got to get over here. I found the lab," and um, they're coming in like these sort of suits, gas masks, and uh, they're going and there's nothing there. And Drax is just waiting to make fun of him. So so then Greg gets really annoyed with him for that one. Tells him your your man should be taken off the case to him. Um, and then later on, he's once again under sheets again with Holly Goodhead when M and uh, um, Frederick Gray are going to try and talk to him. Then you've got the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher scene in in um, For Your Eyes Only, which you know can't keep him. He's not he's not going to be happy about that either. And then in the Living Daylights, um, Gray shouts at him with the laughingstock of the intelligence community um, when Koskov has apparently been kidnapped. So he basically just gets annoyed with Bond in every single Bond film. But justifiably so, because Bond's doing something wrong. But that that character does change a bit over time. Um, in the films, he's depicted as uh, the Minister of Defence, uh, even though so over the course of the Bond films that he's in, he always plays the Minister of Defence. But the government changes over that period from Labour to Conservative, which is interesting. So they don't sort of follow that on with the Bond series and take a note of the political things that are happening at the time. And uh, he, he, in the books, Tanner actually plays the sort of role that, that Grey does. So it's almost like Jeffrey Keane takes on the role of Tanner, what Tanner did in, in, in the books. Um, and Fiori's Only is the only film in which they both appear. Uh, anyway, so a little bit, just a quick bit about Jeffrey Keane, um, because I'm quite a I quite like Jeffrey Keane. I think he's a fantastic um, character uh, or actor in the, the series. So he died in uh, November 2005. He was uh, the son of a stage actor. His whole life he has sort of revolved around stage acting, although at some point he was going to join the London School of Economics but decided against that. Um, he was in the Royal Shakespeare Company. But like to two of the people we've spoken about today, he was enlisted in the war. He actually joined the Royal Army Medical Corps. But starred in an army instructional video while he was there for Carol Reed who was a director at the time films that he's been in he made his direct uh, made his film debut in the riders of the new forest uh he was in the third man uh he was in odd man out and a film called fallen idol he was famous for being one of the busiest character actors around at the time he was meant to be making around five films a year as a, a character actor uh, and that character was a sort of establishment figure he was always portrayed as uh, sort of balding, cold-hearted, sarcastic, either government liaison, executive of some sort, or a lawyer. 
And he, uh, yeah, other things he went on was uh, appeared in The Spanish Garner, Dr. Chivago, Born Free, Cromwell, Hammer Horror Film, uh, The Taste, uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula. Um, and over his career, he appeared in uh, over 100 films. Pretty good. Um, and then just one last bit on Grey. Now, there is a character in Tomorrow Never Dies, um, played by Julian Fellows, who is the Ministry of Defence in that but he's never actually named as being uh, Grey. So he's, it's an unnamed character by by Julian Fellows, but that may well be um, uh, Grey, but um, it's never mentioned. So there we go. That is Geoffrey Keane as Sir Frederick Grey. Mm. Yeah, another uh, iconic 80s character for mm. Bond. Right. G is for Graydon, Dickie Graydon, and another uh, stunt performer. So uh, quite interesting that he's uh, side by side with Martin Grace in this episode because he's another iconic Bond uh, stunt performer and coordinator. He's worked on many, many James Bond films. Um, And like Vic Armstrong, who we talked about in one of our very first episodes, he credits his early work as a jockey as an excellent foundation for his stunt work. As as you can remember, Vic Armstrong was uh, heavily involved with horses as well before he became a stunt person so some of Dickie Graydon's Bond credits I'll just whiz through these 1963 he did stunts on From Russia With Love 1964 stunts on Goldfinger 1965 stunts on Thunderball 1967 stunts on You Only Live Twice and he actually also appeared as a cosmonaut in that film as well um in honor majesty's secret service this is where he really steps up um and he does a stunt he, he's george lazenby's stunt double when they do the cable car hanging sequence mm-hmm. and i'll talk a little bit more about that in a second uh 1977 he did more stunts on the spy love me uh he did more stunts on moonraker 1979 and including being roger moore's stunt double on the cable car scene uh then stunts on fioris only stunts on octopussy where he was stumped double for roger moore on top of the train and also appeared in the circus as francisco the fearless and then did stunts on a view to a kill as well so back to honor majesty secret service he doubled for lazenby uh tobogganing on the cresta run uh in that film um and also when uh 007 escapes uh his gloria via the cable car and talking about that um stunt which is i never realized they did it for real but uh yeah apparently they did and it was dickie graden that did it he said the drop was about 80 feet the only safety devices i had were two hooks in the palms of my hands attached to my safety belt and the difficulty was that the ice had formed on the cable he also uh, in that film played draco's driver as well in moonraker this was uh doubling for roger moore in rio um, things went a little bit wrong for, for Dickie and he slipped um, and actually was hanging on uh, the cable car just by one hand and with no safety devices attached to him. So according to reports, the, the crew, including Ken Adam, who were there, were just petrified watching while the camera was rolling and they were looking on from a vantage point. Graydon says this was the scariest moment of his stunt career, which you can quite believe. Mm-hmm. So after many, many years working this, I mean, he's got countless credits to his name, you, uh, name a film, an iconic film, and he's been in it. But um, 
uh, yeah, he basically he died in uh, in 2014, aged 92, um, having enjoyed a very long career as a stunt performer. And talking about Graydon, Martin Grace, who we talked about earlier, said Richard Graydon is the most courageous stuntman I ever worked with. He treated hanging in the rafters of a volcano 120 feet up and on top of a cable car in Rio as if he was having a coffee down at Piccadilly Circus in London. He made what other stuntmen claimed as too dangerous and impossible look like a walk in the park. Although small in stature, he was head and shoulders above the rest. Richard's quick wit and intelligence in the stunt field is greatly missed. Yeah, he was quite a, sh- quite a short man, I think. Five foot seven, five foot eight, something like that. But yeah, I guess that wraps up our uh, special on the letter G. But shall we talk about some of the characters under the letter G quickly? Yes, let's do it. Uh, so we've got okay in the G's we have got Pussy Galore played by Arnold Blackman in Goldfinger iconic fantastic without without a doubt one of the most important characters that's ever existed in in the Bond series mm. and memorable yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, memorable and also played by one of the greatest British actors yeah mm. Honor Blackman isn't it yeah, yeah fantastic iconic character but yeah just to say that we'll cover her in more detail when we get to Goldfinger which is in a Very couple soon. of episodes time uh, so yeah. Gabinda, uh, who is uh, the henchman from Octopussy, played by Kabir Bedi. Um, he wears a turban. I can't remember much more about him other than that, that he's kind of like a Jaws, silent, but strong type. Um, mm-hmm. Octopussy, I've got to say, is not one of my favourite Bond films. But uh, yeah. yeah, he's um, yeah an interesting hench person. He's not, he's not very... I think that, that film is... It throws in too many sort of dodgy henchman and I don't think he really I think he's sort of like meant to be big like Jaws I think but never really pulls off any sort of major scares like Jaws does not in Moonraker but in spite of me but yeah. he's yeah he's, he's a bit of a non-entity for me in that one not very memorable yeah who's next Brendan uh or at Goldfinger the main villain in Goldfinger played by Gert Froh. well yeah played by Gert Froh, not voiced by Gert Froh, but probably the greatest villain i think i can't think oh of it. yeah yeah it definitely set the template didn't they for for mm. what we expect from bond villains um yeah well, we'll again we'll talk about him in great detail when we get to goldfinger yeah. oh yes okay so then we've got holly goodhead played by lois charles uh, one of those uh brilliant bond names isn't it holly goodhead a woman <laughs> <laughs> mm. not not as i i, I always find um Holly Good had a tricky one because she's her role sits in a strange film. She probably gets a lot of dodgy lines and her character's a little bit confusing throughout the whole thing. I think she probably, Lois Charles would have been good given the opportunity to play a better character, but she just sort of misses the mark for me. So then we've got Mary Goodnight, who uh, is played by Britt Eklund in The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, ridiculous Bond girl. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. The, she's like the, well, she's, she's like the Tif- Tiffany Case yeah. model, isn't she? Just mm-hmm. what, Actually, she doesn't even start that good. Tiffany Case starts with a sort of level of um, sincerity and then just turns into standing on an um, oil rig in a bikini with a machine gun. I think Britt Eklund starts pretty early on like that <laughs> yeah she's a bikini more than a character isn't she unfortunately yeah uh dominic green played by matthew almerick quantum of solace he's a he's a billionaire isn't he like 
uh, water. Pest of some sort, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Doing something with water and oil. Yeah, and he's high up in quantum. Yeah. He's... I like the bit, the fact that uh, in that film, Daniel Craig kills a lot of people. He has a lot of fights and kills a lot of people, but he struggles in a fight with Dominic Green. Just doesn't seem very <laughs> plausible. He's not the most. Uh, no. It doesn't look like the, the most imposing of physical men, does it? No. I will say this. I think Matthew Almarick is a terrific actor. If you've seen mm. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, he is uh, yeah, unforgettable in that. And yeah, I think he's a bit of a wasted opportunity in this film. Someone who's not, though. Red Grant. Yes. yes. <laughs> we talk- Absolute tour de force. Yeah, we've talked about him recently in From Russia With Love. But uh, yeah, love Robert Shaw, love Red Grant. I think he's just love from Russia with love. It's the, love from Russia with trifecta. Love. I think every time we've ever mentioned Red Grant in any episode, it's always been followed by absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Oh yes, mm-hmm. that's the one. <laughs> and he's been copied so many times, as we talked about in the From Russia with Love episode, like the blonde idea of the blonde henchman. It's just such a. Uh, they, just, they, just, they just got it right, didn't they? Yeah. They just they got they got the Bond henchman. You know that you know that that whole um, idea, and they do it in Marvel films and stuff where that you need a counterpart that is the equal to the 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 the, the hero yeah. to, to battle them but this is an example where they've got it spot on because he's not quite a counterpart but he's a counterpart enough to be the villain yeah yeah, yeah. so that then leads us on to another uh, <laughs> another what <laughs> no, i've got no way to segue into this. the last one of this episode is gustav graves who we talked about at length in die another day episode played by toby stevens an absolutely ridiculous character yeah. um mm. But uh, as we said then, love Toby Stevens. He absolutely sinks his teeth into the part and he has a great entrance in Die Another Day, I think. Um, it's like a cartoon comic book entrance, but um, with the parachute mm. and what have you. Yeah. Um, mm. don't know what and he gets to wear a Power say. Ranger suit. Yes. <sighs> he gets to do all sorts of stuff in that <laughs> he film. Do whatever he wants. If he, just, <laughs> if he listed all the stuff he did in that film, you go, is this, how many films is this? <laughs> just one. Uh, well that just about wraps things up then so our next episode will be a golden eye special oh boy we're talking brendan's sweating already (laughs) it's the one we've all been waiting for uh i know i have it's is it the one we've all been waiting for it is we can finish after this should should we just do it me (laughs) and you goldfinger yeah i think so We'll just mute Wheatley through this next yeah. one because uh, we'll just spend the uh, an hour and a half just saying what like is the best Bond film ever made. Mm, that's just the intro. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a seven part episode, um, but yeah, this is a terrific one, and also it's one of the most modern ones. Oh, obviously we've done Casino Royale so far, but it, we're getting into the modern era of Bond with GoldenEye, and there's so much information out there. So it's going to be a very detailed episode, I think. Well, I suppose this is this is going to be one of the most important Bond films for us because when we're talking about it we can remember it being it happening at the time mm. we can remember the news in it. I know you can say that about the new ones but back then that was like our first memories of really understanding yeah the Bond world this is the formative Bond for me for sure mm. so it's going to be a really interesting episode I can't wait to do it and um, yeah so if people want to get in touch with uh, us on the uh, email <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that on the email email uh, Podcast at jamesbondazz.co.uk and on social at jamesbondazz on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
As always, thank you so much for listening. If this is the first time you've listened, I hope you've enjoyed it. Please go back and listen to all our other episodes that we've done. Um, and if you are a regular listener, thank you as well. We know not everyone listens to these letter episodes or even to the very end of the episode. So if you're listening to this, you're my favourite listener. Um, so Because it is just you. It's just me, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on that note, it just leaves me to say that James Bond will return in the James Bond Aid Said podcast next week. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.